Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I'm joined by Cliff Wilson. Uh, Hopefully many of you, and I think the majority of the listeners will know Cliff, but for those of you who don't, um, Cliff Wilson is one of the top bodybuilding coaches in the world um, with clients earning over 110 pro cards, 75 professional titles, nine world championships, and that may even be out of date now and probably higher than that, right, Cliff? Yeah, yeah, it's been a pretty good year, so I, I haven't looked at the, the what's what we've done this year, but I yeah, I appreciate it. I appreciate you guys having me on again. I, it's always a good time. And with Cliff, the great thing with Cliff is he combines scientifically proven methods with the newer experience-driven techniques, which I think is evidence-based practice, basically. Uh, but unfortunately, some people side to one or the other, and uh, all of our guests on the podcast are well and truly within that evidence-based uh, area. So um, the first thing I wanted to start off with Cliff is kind of talking about your last eight months, and uh, a lot of people maybe aren't aware of what's happened for you, but for those who aren't, um, Cliff hasn't been well, and I think a lot of his kind of experiences here, especially for someone who is literally obsessed with the gym, as probably all the listeners are as well, how you've been able to deal with that, what that's been like, um, any lessons you've got from it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I did finally put it up on social media the other day because some people have been sending me messages talking about how I hadn't been posting much and um, this year, and everyone just wanted to make sure I was okay. But um so um, around Christmas last year, uh, about eight months ago, uh, my, my one-year-old daughter got mono. And um, it, of course, you know, daycare gets passed around. And so she got mono, and she quickly gave it to her mom and my girlfriend, and then I got it. When, whereas everyone else kind of seemed to get over it within about a month to two months. Um, I, I got it and came with the normal fevers and sore throat and all that. And I started to get better, and I just started to kind of resume my normal life. Um, and then it seemed like it started back all over again and I kind of got uh, sick again. And, and so um, one thing I noticed in the last eight months is that it would kind of go through these cycles where I would start to get well and then I would kind of head back down and get sick again. And, um, uh, you know, I talked to the doctors and apparently this does happen to some people with mono is where it just kind of hangs around. And um, apparently, like I'm 35 now, so I'm not a young, young guy anymore. But apparently the older you are when you get mono the first time. Um, the more difficult it is to get rid of it. And so um, I'm kind of at the point right now where I'm not like laying in bed getting fevers and sore throats anymore. And um, But um, I'm just um, a little more tired, a little more run down than normal, and I can't train. Because if I do train again or like train like I normally do, I will get sick all over again. So at this point they said that I can live my normal life but just no super intense training, um, you know, try to sleep a little bit more. Um, eat healthy, which of course we already all do, um, and just kind of live my normal life and try to take it easy where, when and where I can. But yes, you're correct. The not training part has been driving me crazy because I was that guy who I'm like, I never miss a day of the gym, you know. But whereas other people, it's like they try to have to, they have to push themselves to work out. Yeah. You know, most people that are obsessed with bodybuilding, we have to push ourselves to take those off days. Yeah. And so, um, you know, after not missing a workout for like 15 years, taking eight months off of training has been brutal. Um, I think the, the, the biggest part was the hardest part was like, once I started to feel well again, um, you know, not like, you know, we all get sick and you're like, I need to rest until I feel better. But once I started feeling well again, trying to not go in the gym and, and, um, have something else to occupy my time has been, um, has been the bigger challenge. I still have my work with clients, which has been 
Um, you know, I can live vicariously through them, which has been pretty nice. Um, and I have my daughter, but you know, I've been doing a lot more reading, um, you know, just cause I have the time for it. I'll, I'll read or, or listen to, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to a book. And so that's been something I filled my time with. Um, I'll, I'll say that I've actually impressed myself to be able to fill my time without being able to train quite as much. Um, uh, so it, it's, and here's one thing I'll say the biggest thing that I've learned is because I, I'm not necessarily one of those naturally built guys that is muscular before I touch a weight, but I've been pretty impressed with how I've been able to maintain my size, even with like barely training through eight months. Um, I'll get a workout in here or there, but it's not even like, it's not even like normal training. It's like, I'm just going in there and going through the motions with a yeah. 15 pound weight or a 20 pound weight. Um, and, uh, but when I wear t-shirts, most people can't even tell that I haven't been training. Um, probably to the experienced bodybuilding eye, like my arms probably look a little smaller and my chest a little smaller, but, um, like to the average person, they think, they think I'm in great shape, which, um, so I, I guess what I, the takeaway for myself and anybody that may be listening, um, if you get sick and you have to take like a week off of training or something like that, you're going to be just fine. Yeah. I, I promise that. <laughs> yeah, the um, I, yeah. So I, I just, think we all, yeah, I think we all get in that situation where we um, have to take like three or four days off, and we could we like we feel like we're just withering away. And I guess now after this experience, I'm really realizing how much that was totally in my head. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I find, I mean, the literature kind of supports this as well, but the amount of volume you need to maintain is like pretty damn low. Um, and I guess you've been maintaining your protein intake and things as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's, it has been pretty interesting. I mean, this doesn't really necessarily pertain to bodybuilding, but it kind of does if you take it away because um, it, so over the eight months, I kind of have to monitor how I'm feeling on a given day, you know, because um, it kind of lets me know how much I can live my normal life that day. And right now I'm feeling pretty good. And, you know, I, I'm not training yet, but I'm feeling way better than I have for the last several months. But um, so one thing I've noticed is like impacts that, um, uh, I mean, we all know sleep and like food quality will kind of dictate some recovery a little bit, but, um, I, I find it very interesting is how much it dictates, dictates my recovery when I'm, when I'm trying to get well. So like if I sleep, uh, an hour and a half less, or even if I still get the same amount of calories or the same macronutrients, but you know, if I get it from food, that's a little less, a little more nutrient devoid of nutrients mm -hmm. as compared to like a lot of vegetables and things like that. Um, I actually do notice that if I do that for like two days in a row, I feel a little more run down where if I'm getting a lot of fruits and a lot of vegetables and things like that, um, I feel a lot better over the coming days. So, um, you know, while it's probably more amplified with trying to get over the mono, it does kind of show how important that would be with recovery from training and things like that. Um, and I've always been a big fruit and vegetable guy, but it's just been interesting to see the impact that it has over the, you know, over the short term, even when trying to recover from this. So, um, yeah, no, it's, it's been, it's been a challenge, but, um, uh, you know what, there are a lot worse things that could happen. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to come out of this. I don't have any serious injuries or anything like that and I'm going to be able to resume. So in the grand scheme of things, I guess it's not all that bad. <laughs> yeah. It was good to be able to have that perspective because in the moment it's really not fun, but I guess. Yeah, once you kind of accept it and you take that bigger picture approach, you can appreciate it. And no doubt you'll get a load of lessons from transitioning back into training as well. And like an impressive, you have to get some before photos and then after ones. 
I, I took a picture from when I was at my lowest point because like, so I'd have to, when I was really sick, like earlier in the year, like January, February, March, I had to keep my caloric intake high. I noticed like right. I had to keep it high or I wasn't going to get well. So I was like, I wasn't training and I was just gaining weight. No. And I was like, uh, and I was trying to like cut it. You know what I mean? I would try to like cut it a little bit and I noticed I wouldn't start to get better. So I just had to keep it high and I got up to like, for me, not training. And I got up to like 206 or something right. like that, which for me is a pretty high weight. And so I was like, I'm going to snap a fat picture here. And I grabbed it. My arms look tiny and my belly is real big. So I will, I will put that up. I promise. Um, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do it when we go to the seminar there. I'll do it. Uh, I'll put up a presentation or something like that. Um, well, um, yeah, I, I, I snapped a really good picture that I think people will get a kick out of. But, you know, about the perspective thing, I'll say one thing that helped. I don't know if anybody's been watching on my page. I had a client who recently won her IFBB Pro card, and um, she has gone through some joint injuries that actually almost ended up, like joint issues um, that actually almost ended up costing her leg. But she has um, she has multiple sclerosis wow. um, and um, uh, lupus. And she has overcome cancer uh, in her life. And so, yeah, and she did, she went through all of these and, oh, and she had a stroke uh, and a seizure at the beginning of prep. And um, she, you know, her doctors were monitoring her the whole way and I was just kind of working with what they gave me. But her emails were always so overwhelmingly positive. Right. Like um, her, her stroke was so bad actually that she had to like relearn certain things. Um, like she couldn't train for a few weeks because she was actually like, starting to like relearn how to do a lot of things and her emails were so overwhelmingly positive and I'm like I have no right yeah. to be um, you know uh, to be down about this when she's going through all these things so um, you know it did definitely help put some things in perspective so Brittany if you're watching this um, your, your emails were very helpful to me <laughs> massive props to Brittany that's insane <laughs> yeah yeah so actually uh, Cliff mentioned then I badly didn't introduce this at the start cliff will be over in the uk uh, in london right by houston station which is great to get to on the 28th of september which is um coming really soon actually it's about a month away now so um, definitely if you are interested in learning more about many of the things we're going to talk about today um, and what cliff's all about and want to ask some good questions then do come um, there are still tickets available in link below um, and to give you a bit of a taster of what we're going to be talking about um, on that day is one of the things cliff will be touching on is kind of you call these foundational strategies for success um, and i don't know if there's a certain kind of area you want to dive down in today's podcast cliff yeah yeah so i mean i i one thing i'm excited about is because i've wanted to come to the uk for quite some time um because the the bodybuilding scene in the uk is i mean excellent uh, yeah. uh, uh when when I, when i have clients competing in the uk um the classes are always deep and they're always really strong and guys are always shredded um whereas you know not to bash the us but it can kind of be hit or miss depending on which show you go to and so so i really like the the scene i'm looking forward to getting over there and and um you know get being a part of it for for a change so um but yeah, I'm going to, one of the talks that I'm going to do is the, I call it foundational concepts for bodybuilding success. Because um, one thing that I really notice is that a lot of bodybuilders today get, get bogged down in the details, you know, that old missing the forest through the trees. Um, you know, people are like, how many carbs should I have? How much protein should I have? And while that, that definitely matters, um, I would kind of put that as like the next thing you should worry about because they miss, they miss things like um, how long should my prep be? how fast should I lose weight during that amount of time? Um, you know, how should I structure my peak week? 
Um, how do I transition out of my show? And then how uh, long should my off season be? Um, and those questions are very broad questions, but you know, before you can even start worrying about how much protein should I have, how many carbs should I have? Well, that's going to be dependent on how long is your prep and uh, how fast do you need to lose? Because you know, you need to answer these bigger questions first before you can start answering the smaller ones. And so, um, uh, you know, I'm going to talk about this. I'm trying not to, you know, but we're going to talk about this in the in the the presentation. But um, you know, some people they always um, the number one thing that I see people do wrong actually when they come and apply with me is they pick shows that are too um, too soon. Okay. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I actually went through. It's been a little while. I went through last year, and um, I had my assistant like uh, go through my applications. And I was like, how many people did we uh, um, not have to ask to pick a later show? Like what percentage? And uh, so he went through and he looked and he was like, okay, you know, who didn't we ask to pick a later show? Um, the the answer was 6%. Wow. Didn't need a show. So only 6% of people, in, in my opinion, picked appropriately timed shows. Um, and so like the way I put it with that, so, you know, we're looking at 94% of people essentially are go are going to fail because you could make almost every correct macronutrient change, but you know if you haven't given yourself enough time, you could be losing great during that entire prep. But if you haven't given yourself enough time, you're not going to get as lean as you should just because you did this one thing wrong. And so um, you know there, there are um, not a lot of things. So sometimes I struggle with to give people exact calculations for th things, but I always wish I could give people exact calculations for things. But there's so few things in the sport that have that real precise um, measurement. But I, you know, I actually think that um, picking a show length, calculating a, a, a rate of loss, and, and those are two things that I think can be boiled down to a, a pretty precise, you know, calculation. And so, um, you know, I, I like to go over that. Um, yeah, and I'm sure you see this all the time too. If people, you know, they they pick shows. And they're even if they have everything correct, you know, they're just they need another month. <laughs> yeah, the the thing I'm finding actually recently is probably that it looks like there's an appropriate amount of time, but that's without putting in time for things not going your way or um, people not necessarily being as adherent as they should be. And uh, I think as you've probably coached many people, you probably found that you have to plug that in from the from the get go. Yeah, you know, and yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and sometimes um, I think it can even be kind of tricky too, where you have um, so you know, because some people will say, well, last time I competed, I was able to lose this many pounds in this many weeks, and like I'm like, well, situations can change. Like you said, um, I think a lot of people usually get a cold or something like yeah. that during a prep or get sick once because you know you come pretty immunocompromised during uh, uh, during the tail end of prep. So that or some some little strain or injury that goes on or, yeah, something like that. And so, you know, if you have a week or two where you just don't lose any weight, um, then you, you now you've got to make that up. And so um, I do think accounting for something going wrong is the best way to do it. You know, so I, I, I even tell people sometimes, like, if yeah, you can lose um, a pound and a half per week. But, um, you know, if you calculate for a pound and a half per week, then uh, you better hit that pound and a half or else, you know, if you have two weeks where you don't lose weight, that piles up real quick. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I think giving yourself enough time. And then um, even 
planning to be early. So, you know, I like to plan, you know, to, to get early and then kind of bring food yeah. back up as you're going in, um, you know, fill out a little bit. But, you know, I, I so I, I mean, I would dare say that's like the first question you need to ask. And then, and then I also talk about, um, we're going we're gonna to discuss like what to do with stubborn body fat, yep. because I think we all have those parts that, um, you know, we all have those parts that uh, generally just don't seem to lose weight. And so I, I, I always run through the scenario where I'll even use it for myself. My, my, for myself, it's like my midsection. It's like the last thing to come in lower back and lower abs. And, uh, you know, I will have striations on my triceps and some lines in my glutes um, before I even start seeing my bottom set of abs coming in. Uh, it's like, it's the worst, by the way, it's the worst men's physique body you could ever imagine. That's why I probably, I have like split quads. I need one where I walk out there in a sweatshirt and just, uh, just show the face off. But, um, but you know, uh, and I think for a lot of black competitors, it tends to be the glute area that is like the last area to come in. And so, um, I run through like how to take care of this, you know, what, what needs to be done about it. So, um, no, and so. So then from there, um, I'll be kind of transitioning into uh, peak week protocols. Um, peak week, uh, I think that's one of the things, at least for some time, I've kind of been known for with like the rapid backload peak. But I think that there's a lot of misconception that that's the only type of peak I do. Like this yeah. coming weekend, I have four competitors competing and not one of them is rapid backloading. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that uh, one, knowing the ins and outs of why, um, you know, how, how carbohydrates, sodium and water, uh, play off of each other mm -hmm. and how they interact and then being able to structure it in a certain way. So with this one, we take what we kind of know about science and this part is probably a little bit more, um, experience based yep. on, on my part. Um, you know, you mentioned that I do like to kind of take what science tells us, but I'm not really afraid to jump out just with pure observation. Um, so I'm going to be covering that. Um, sometimes when, when I do stuff like that, or even like with, um, peak week observations because this is going to sound a little crazy, but, um, I, sometimes I'm sure you've seen this with some of your clients, you kind of will, um, decide a peak week method. And sometimes you're not even totally sure how to explain them why you think this peak week method would be working. But like, you can even sell like how lean they are or where they hold some of their body fat. Like, you know, if, if what was the last area to lose or how that their glutes are looking. Um, I, I always actually kind of think of something my dad said to me one time. My dad actually uh, has his PhD. He's a plant pathologist. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah, we yeah we landed very far apart with our <laughs> with where we landed. But my dad was a plant pathologist. He's retired now, but um, he was like one of the best in the world at what he did. Wow. And uh, two yeah, and two things that stuck out that he said to me. One, he was talking about how one time he went to a conference, and um, the one of the speakers at the conference didn't actually have his degree in biology, um, but he was more of a business guy, but he'd been in, I think he was, I think he worked for Monsanto, but he'd been in the, um, industry so long. Um, so he was saying that this guy got up and gave a talk and, you know, I'm not terribly well versed with, uh, plant pathology, so I'm not really going to even attempt to talk about what he was talking about, but, um, it was a lot of experience based stuff, yep. you know what I mean? Like just observations from the field. Um, and so he, he said that 
he always remembers it as one of the most important talks that he ever um, remembered because this guy just had a lot of experience and had a good eye for things and was like, this is the stuff I have seen. And then he said over the next 15 years, he watched as the science went on and proved everything that this guy saw. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, he said, and, and it actually, my dad told me that story early on in my coaching career and it made me feel a little more comfortable about doing things that, um, you know, may not have been currently proven by science, but, you know, like trust the, the observations that you're right. seeing. Um, and so, um, and then my, and then one more thing that he told me is, you know, he, he said, cause sometimes he would have to go out and look at seeds, um, in the field and he, or plants, and he would try to have to breed them to create the, you know, the change that he wanted. And he said that sometimes he'd just be in the field and he would see a certain plant that maybe has a certain texture of the leaves or a seed that has a certain look to it. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and so like, um, uh, you know, I kind of even noticed the same thing when I'm making peak weeks for people. Um, like, they're like, what made you choose this peak? Um, and I'm like, kind of like, well, um, your skin kind of has a grainy look to it, or it looks like your skin looks a little squishy. Like, right. <laughs> I know it sounds so, um, even in the peak week talk, I'm going to talk about some of those strange observations that yeah. I noticed, like, and I'm going to give some examples of like, this person tends to have a little bit more of a you know, he has glutes in, you know what I mean? Like he has glutes, but his skin looks a little more squishy than this guy who has a little bit more of a grainy look. Yeah, yeah. So this squishy skin guy, I might do this type of peak. This grainier skin guy, I might do this type of peak. So um, we're going to use some some observations I've had after just peaking so many people. <laughs> yeah, I think um, that in particular will be, well, a lot of what you're going to be talking about, the invaluable parts are going to be because you've had so much experience. I mean, to have the number of like pro cards and professional titles and world champions you have, that's more clients than a lot of coaches have even worked with, let alone like actually you've probably worked with, I don't know, three times, four times that amount of people. I don't know, but um, the amount of experience you have uh, especially in areas like peak week, which to be honest, we don't really have, we have no direct data on it and it's unlikely that we're ever going to get any great data on it. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't see a lot of um, funding for such a niche, you know, niche uh, <laughs> area of study. But, you know, you're, you're right. And, and you know, you coach as well, I know. So I'm sure you like even still, you know, every year I can sit down with like some new things that I noticed, um, you know, from observations. And I'm like, well, this is a little different. I'll, I'll make note of that. So it's it's very interesting. You're right. The, the experience count for, counts for so much and it really pile, piles up with each person you prep. Um so I, I think that's always a, a very – I really enjoy the peak week aspect too because it is um, it is a lot more dynamic, whereas a lot of times with, with prep, it's a little more like you can get a little more protocol. Like, hey, I want to keep this rate of loss. We're not there. Let's make the change. Let's make yeah. a change. And it's kind of repetitive that way, whereas like peak week tends to be fun because it is like a day-to-day, -day, you know, oh, let's go there. Let's go there. I, I, I find it to be um, – you know, while the prep, I would say, is the more important part in creating the look that you want, and the peak week is sort yeah. of the fine tuning. I, the peak week is definitely exciting. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, so I, 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 I'm looking forward to that one. Absolutely. Um, quite, yeah. And then, um, so then after that, you know, we'll talk about the transitioning into an off season, yeah. um, which I think has been kind of a, uh, uh, quite an evolving topic over the last, you know, few years, like Lane Norton, I know he was really doing like the slower reverse diets. Um, I think he may have gotten away from that a little bit, quite mm -hmm. going so slow. Um, and then, you know, the three DMJ guys kind of do the recovery diet. 
Um, I, I wish I had like a specific name for what I do, but, um, it's probably, it's very different. I kind of like, I kind of talk about some of the, I'm going to talk about some of the factors to really look for because some people I will go slow. Some people go really fast. Um, cause I think you need to look at things like mentality of the person. Um, yeah. because I, I think that's actually like a huge factor. Some people are so panicked about gaining weight that I think if you push it too hard and they gain weight, then it's almost a recipe for them to start cutting calories on their own. I've, I've seen people do that before going too fast for what they think they should be. Um, you know, mentality of the person. Um, and then you look at some, kind of some of the biofeedback they're giving you, like, you know, how's my hunger? How's my energy both in and out of the gym strength progression, you know, um, just all these things. And you kind of like when you get that combined with the rate of gain and, um, put it all together and then you can kind of almost build a tailored look at, how fast you need to go for each person. Um, but, I, I, but in the end, I'm going to say that I think most people, <laughs> I, I, I'm sure you've seen this in your post shows. I really think that most of the weight gain that people see post show does not come from the macronutrients that they put into their diet plan. It comes from the match, uh, the, the calories that make their way in there from estimated meals right. or meals with friends. Like, so I, I've actually tested out on myself. So in 2016, I actually didn't have an estimated meal or a meal out for six weeks post show. Because <clears throat> um, I wanted to see how fast I could add. I was able to, I went from like 100 grams of carbohydrates per day at the bottom of my prep um, to up to like 400. And I didn't like, I wasn't gaining, um, at least not for the first few weeks. It was yeah. mostly just glycogen. And so, um, you know, I'm going to, also kind of talk about some of the things to watch out for in terms of where people's downfalls mostly go. Yeah. Um, you know, cause I think that the things that people, yeah, you can calculate for this stuff all day, but then the plan goes out the window. What's that, what's that Mike Tyson saying? Mike Tyson always said, yeah, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's kind of how post show goes, you know what I mean? Yeah. They always have this plan. Um, and, and you know, I, I, I don't know about you, but the one thing that I've always noticed that is a, um, a huge red flag is when people are like before their show, um, like telling me first off, they have like, they've already bought the food that they plan to eat. Yeah. That that's a big one. And then the other one is when they're like post show, um, I don't really want to, I just want to enjoy myself. That usually is the sign of somebody that's about to go off the rails to me. Um, because it, it does seem innocent in their head. Like, yeah. I'm just going to enjoy myself. And, and, you know, in the off season, we'd have no problem yeah. going out to eat, estimating and controlling ourselves one week post show. That's not, that's not the case usually. Yeah. I really, I, I think probably you struggle to give your approach a name because it's, although not to say that the recovery diet is, isn't individualized, but I think that a lot of the ways people approach that maybe isn't. So you probably struggle to give it a name because it's so dependent on the person where they've been, where they're at. Um, their mentality and everything like that, which is going to be invaluable for coaches or competitors who are going to be attending and trying to help people with that phase, which is arguably something that you really need to get right, especially if you intend to compete in future years or like even soon. Yeah, yeah. And and you see the, the people coming out of a show, they're so um, varying in their mentality yeah. of how they're going to approach the post-show period. Um, some people kind of have like a, and, and you gotta, you, I, I really think that part of a big part of like the job of a coach is impulse management. And so, um, 
you know, and, and then I think that, you know, if I'm talking to a group of people that are coaching themselves, you need to, um, so whenever I give a presentation, I try to talk to, I know there's usually a lot of coaches in the crowd. Um, so I kind of do it from two perspectives when I speak to uh, an audience is I want to you know, tell them what you need to do if you coach people, what you need to do if you coach yourself. Um, because I think that um, if you're coaching yourself, you need to be aware of what these impulses will probably be. I mean, everybody has them. I have them myself. Um, and then if you're coaching people, you need to watch out for signs of what these other people may be doing. Because like, I think we have some people where um, they are so strict with themselves, the idea of eating anything off plan um, is almost scary to them. Yeah. And gaining weight is almost scary to them. So you've got to find ways to normalize weight gain. Like, hey, this is what we want. We want to gain weight. Um, you know, it's okay to estimate a meal. This is how you go about doing it. Yeah. And then you have these other people that are like, ah, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. And they're 40 pounds up within three weeks, you know, and, uh, and I've seen some of those situations. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I think it's all about kind of um, uh, first, um, expectation management with yeah. clients. And so, um, and then also if you coach yourself expectation management, you know, like I think it's a good point to lay out before you, if you coach yourself, you know, your post-show period, like what do I expect of myself in this post-show period and, and i even think it's helpful to write it down and during those times you start getting those crazy ideas like i'm just gonna add a lot of calories and just um i really want to get back to my off-season weight within a <laughs> you know x amount of time and really pack it on you know r review your expectation management um and so you know we'll, we'll lay out i'm gonna lay out a list mm -hmm. of things you really want to watch for how to provide that mental and physical um you know, bring the mental and the physical cues that your body yeah. is giving you and kind of put it together in something that's usable and actionable. Fantastic. Um, but yeah. 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 And then, then the last portion of that one is going to be, um, uh, off season length. Um, I, I think that this is another area where physical kind of, so first off you're going to be looking at is the person natural versus, um, are they enhanced? Right. You're going to get different off season lengths there because the amount of, you know, I, I, <laughs> I would dare say that an enhanced person can make more progress in a year than, a natural person can and, and don't say three. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know right um so uh you know that's going to be a factor um uh also how long does it take to get back to normal post show because i think there's individual responses to post show recovery um and then even individual stress levels um so uh and, and lifestyle so um, i'm going to talk about all those things and what are some realistic expectations for off-season timelines mm -hmm. before then you should go so Anyway, you go from contest prep, you know, how do I set my length? How long yeah. should that be? Peak week, how do I structure that off-season, um, transitioning into the off-season and then off-season? So um, that's why I say foundational because these aren't dealing with the little details. These are the big things that a lot of people, honestly, I don't think they really give enough thought to. Um, how long should this be? And then when you put those asks together, you really get a repeatable timeline for what your entire career should look like. Um, and, and, you know, it becomes that. And then you start filling in the details within the, that structure. Yeah, I, I think that sounds, well, for a competitor myself and a coach, like I'm very excited for it. I think that'll be really great. And actually something I think you said you're also going to touch on, Cliff, and I think this will be really valuable coming from you because you do get people so shredded is kind of you're going to cover kind of getting rid of kind of stubborn body fat as well. Yeah, yeah, um, because I don't think that um, when it comes to stubborn body fat, it's uh, it's. Well, first off, I think that people always try to trick, you know, they, they always want for that trick yeah. is like, how, 
how do I get that last area to come off? Um, I, I think it's going to be a lot more simple than people think, but you know, um, I think that they they, they want to try things like waist trainers and you know wraps and stuff like that, or specific supplements to kind of spot reduce. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of I actually actually am going to have so I, it's something to discuss, but I actually kind of um, I use an analogy and usually I'll bring a couple people up with me and all. That. I think we've all, all we've all been there too, even with like competitors or even average people. People, how many times do we have people say they grab their stomach and they go, if I could just get rid of this right here. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I think that it'll be a, a good one because, yeah, so I think it also kind of matters in picking your divisions on, on where your stubborn body fat tends to be. So um, I think that'll depend on each competitor versus um, a bodybuilder versus bikini. So I think that that'll also plays into where you're at. So um, yeah, then after you know, then after we lay out that structure one, I, I know we were going to do that second one, um, the second presentation where I was going to kind of talk about my evolution over the course of my training career, which um, I, I think is a quite a bit different talk um, than what other people have been. Maybe that's the one where I'll put my fat picture yeah. from from uh, from the other. But but I actually have you know, that people tend to like that talk quite a bit because I'm gonna I include all of the most embarrassing pictures of myself that I've ever taken over the course of my career so that people can get a kick out of that. <laughs> and I think from what I've heard, I mean, um, I ha we only had someone kind of comment saying they'd been to one of your seminars before and they, they were like, they, they gave you big props. So um, I'm very excited to see you kind of present um, all of that. But I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I, I put a lot of... Um, I put a lot of care into the presentation because I never want to be the guy that just goes up there and spouts off studies. Yeah. Um, does that make sense? Because yeah. I, I, I think that, um, you know, I, usually the crowds that I'm speaking to are very educated people. Um, and so I'm like, you know, they probably read all the studies that I have, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I don't want to just go up there and read to them. I want to, um, you know, kind of tie it together and, ways that do apply to real life yeah. um, and can be usable and but also um, make it interesting and you know sometimes funny um, and so uh, I, 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 I take that very seriously to you know make sure that everybody walks out with something that they can go and use right away yeah I think that that practical information like and that you can start using immediately is invaluable um, so yeah I, so I'm gonna be I'm super excited for it um, I'm sure we've already got a bunch of people coming already so more the merrier um, so I think we can maybe go on to some Q&A now we had some questions come in um, if you're happy to do that Cliff yeah yeah that'd be great perfect we have a first question from Kevin Cockerham, and he has asked, uh, do you find clients have a hard time accepting how extreme things may get during prep? For example, how low body weight has to go, um, how little calories they have to consume, or how much cardio they must have to do? Yes, that is a, that's actually a really good question. I don't know if I've ever asked that, I've been asked that. So um, I actually think that, um, I, I find that, well, well, kind of like we were talking about before, expectation management is a yeah. big... <laughs> is a big thing. Um, and I, I find that with coaching, um, it's really important for me to manage client expectations. And one thing I notice, um, people have different, um, uh, energy management. Um, people are different with their energy management. So like, I find that I have some clients where it's like, I really have to kick them in the ass to get that you know, get them to go. You know what I mean? Like they, they always fight me on adding more cardio yeah. or doing a 
but and I'm like, come on, we've got it, we've got to move. And then I actually have sometimes the opposite end of the spectrum, where I don't. I have some people where I don't even. I'll start prep with them, but I won't even really tell them we're in prep. Um, I kind of like we're just losing a few pounds because the second I use the word prep, we could be like <laughs> yeah. six months out, and they're like, here we go. You know, they're they're so up from the moment I say the word prep. And so, um, you know, and they're like, do you need me to do extra cardio? Should I cut more calories? And <laughs> yeah. so, um, so, um, I, I do think that managing, you know, I'll say this, the one thing that I think some of the best competitors I've ever worked with, and when I say best, not just like winning world championships or anything like that, but actually best in terms of like the people who make the most of their, their potential, um, the people that can manage their energy appropriately, um, they know when to rest and they also know when to really step on the gas and go. Um, and I think that that is something that can also be learned, but I think putting effort into learning is important. So yeah, um, some people I really have to, um, change their expectations. So like I would say, actually, I would say a fair amount of, um, male clients that I work with, we'll go with bodybuilders here, have to get under, 110 grams of carbohydrates to get striated glutes, you know, and, and, you know, probably four, four or five days a week of cardio, but some people have to go way higher than that. Um, but like almost everyone gets below 110 grams of carbohydrates to get striated glutes that I've seen. Um, and so for some people, you know, they're like, I can't believe I have to go below 180 carbs. And I'm like, man, you, you know, you, you're actually better than most. Yeah. Um, and particularly almost all females. So yeah. I think that the realities of it, um, I, I did something a while ago actually where I took different competitors, male yeah. and female, and I talked about what their lowest macronutrient intakes yes. were and their highest cardio. And that was insanely popular. Um, I think I was actually going to do something like that this winter again. I was going to do a week of that and actually a week of peak weeks with people. Um, because I do think, um, people have, um, People have a they're mis they're misinformed about what it really takes to get to that elite level of conditioning. Yeah, and it doesn't come easy. Anybody that's ever been there. It's actually really interesting. I know recently um, Andrew Chappelle and Eric Helms had released, or as I think it was Andrew's study, and Eric helped with it. And it was kind of an observational um, questionnaire to BMBF competitors and like pro and amateur, and looking at kind of how many what they were doing differently to each other with their nutrition for the most part. Um, so I actually feel like they're better off just like asking you, Cliff, for all of your your client templates just to see um, what you're doing. They you can get a lot of data from what you're you've got there. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I try to, and I save all of the clients that I've ever worked with. I save all of it. So sometimes I will like look through and um, compile some things. I haven't really compiled the percentage that need to go below a specific number, but. Um, you know, I, I think my clients' carbohydrates tend to get lower because I do go higher on protein than most. Yeah. Um, but I mean, if we're looking at total caloric intake. I do think that most people end up um, around a pretty specific number. Um, but how long they need to stay at that low number can be very variable. Okay. Um. So, um, so, so I I found that usually you will hit. So, um, you know, I know everybody gets really big into because metabolic adaptation is a thing, but there hits a certain um, threshold where the metabolic rate cannot, um, you know, cannot, uh, drop any further. You know, your body just can't, can't, um, lower your metabolic rate any further. So I do find that usually everybody has this point where they'll hit a certain caloric intake 
where they can, as long as they stick with the plan, they can lose pretty consistently. Okay. Um, and you keep losing without making many changes. I know for me, um, once I get around like 290 grams of protein, around 110 grams of carbohydrates and like 50 to 55 grams of fat without cardio, I will lose about, you know, um, a little under a pound a week, um, or somewhere around a half kilogram, a little under a half kilogram. And so I'll consistently lose and I can honestly stay there for months and I'll just keep dropping consistently. Um, and so I think that a lot of people, it's kind of around like you work your way down and usually you can find that, that sweet nice. spot and then just kind of coast it, coast it and just be patient and let it happen. Um, but, uh, but yeah, a, a lot of people are, um, a little disillusioned when they find out what that number actually is for yeah. them. They're like, they're like, Jesus, I'm three months <laughs> out and I'm at, you know, her cars and <laughs> just like, you know, this is what it takes. Um, the, I guess the last thing I'll say on that question is, um, the one way that I actually try to um, frame people's mindset going in is if you're really serious about getting lean and being your best, start like repeating in your head before prep even starts. Or if you're a coach, tell your clients this, tell them to um, be resolute in not caring what it takes to get there and just focus on the fact that you will do whatever it takes. And it, it, once you kind of frame that properly in your mind, it, you know, it doesn't matter what I have to do. It's just what needs to be done. Um, and so once you kind of frame it that way in your mind, you're like, it doesn't matter. Cut this week. It doesn't matter. It's what needs to be done. And um, the people that can embrace that mindset, um, those those cuts to their calories don't seem to hurt as much. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, I guess I think I don't know who this comes from, but it's kind of like the embrace the suck that I know is like a common phrase people hear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I do really like that because I, I think even, you know, I'm not a runner, but I, I know some runners and I think that a lot of times when I talk to people that do marathons and stuff like that, um, they've talked about how when they're running a marathon, it's much more helpful to be, um, thinking about things other than the pain. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if constantly just focusing on how tired you are in the pain, that's what starts to dominate your mind. But if you're thinking about like your pace, you know, how fast am I going? Do I need to speed up my pace? Should I slow it down a little bit? Think about think about the things that are actually productive, not the not the things that suck about the whole thing. <laughs> you know, just let it just let it happen. Yeah, it's gonna happen. Yeah, I think sometimes kind of being ignorant or distracting yourself is a good thing. Like you said, you don't tell that person they're starting prep. You've just said we're just starting a fat loss phase because sometimes just that mindset can put you in a bad place. Yeah, those people are the people that if they were running a marathon, they'd sprint off that finish <laughs> yeah. line. I'm like, oh, slow down. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and as a side note, um, the, one thing that I actually tell a lot of my competitors is to um, not focus so much on the, the fatigue and the hunger and try to um, don't lean into it. I, it sounds like a small thing, but I always tell my competitors, like, stop telling your spouse or your girlfriend or your boyfriend how hungry and tired you are all the time. Um, because it kind of does become this like self defeating yeah. mentality. You know what I mean? Like if you're, and, and it sounds like a, I don't know if anybody listens to Jordan Peterson, but kind of a Jordan Peterson thing where I'm like, also like walk with your chest up because I think sometimes during prep people get in this mindset where they're constantly telling everyone how hungry and tired they are. And they're kind of like moping around with their head yes. down and their chest. down. And I'm like, you know, um, of course, 
you're going to start to feel defeated if that's how you're carrying yourself all the time. You know what I mean? Like, you know, have some purpose, pick your chin up and, you know, tell fake it till you make it essentially. Yeah. <laughs> and related to this question, Cliff, actually, as a coach, taking people to like, I can imagine having to take someone's calories very, very low, get them doing lots of cardio to the point at which it's kind of like they're having to complain back to you. I imagine that's quite hard for you as a coach, or at least at some point it was. How did you kind of manage that? Um, I mean, a couple things. One, I need to, first off, I need to listen because if somebody's telling me they're really tired or really hungry, um, that's not a, that's not something that needs to be ignored. Fantastic. Um, because I think as a coach, if we're pushing people's limits, we also need to know where their breaking point is. Yeah. Um, like I can have some people, I've had some competitors where, you know, maybe they're older female competitors and they're bodybuilders. So they need to get shredded. I've had some where I can take them to, you know, an hour and a half of cardio seven days a week. And they're, keep in mind, the one time was you get somebody that's also very small. They have a body weight of 102 pounds on stage. So I can take them there. And I'll talk to them about how you're feeling and they kind of give me more of a, an analysis rather than the emotions of it all. You know, it's tough, but I'm getting through, I manage it with this. I'm like, okay, good. They're not at their breaking point. You know what I mean? Like they're they're. But meanwhile, I'll have some other competitors where they're at 30 minutes of cardio a day per day. And the emails are really long and you know, I'm struggling and I don't know how I'm going to manage this. I'm like, this person's near their breaking point. Right. So um, first step is I need to listen and then, but if this becomes like a repeating pattern of constantly complaining, then I actually need to um, have a discussion with them. Like, hey, you know, when you tell me these things, it makes me think you can't handle anymore. Um, and I, I will usually lay it out with them pretty, um, so I'll usually lay it out with them pretty honestly. I'll just yeah. say, when you tell me these things, it's going to make me think that you can't handle much more and we need to pull back a little bit or not push much farther. So you need to ask yourself, I kind of lay it out as a, I put it on like, Hey, our choices are we do what needs to be done and we get where we want to be, or you don't think you can push that hard and we need to just continue through, not push it any harder and let it, let the results land where they may. Um, I mean, I think that I found that most people, once you sort of put that challenge out to them, they're like, yeah. bring it. You know what I mean? Um, because, uh, so it kind of interrupts that complaining cycle. Does that make yeah. sense? Um, so for me, it interrupts that complaining cycle. And when I put the two options in front of them, um, if we're going to push it, it makes them take ownership of that decision. And usually they want to, they want to excel at that. Um, I, I think that one thing that can be dangerous as a coach, um, is that um, sometimes when we're coaching people, um, certain clients can feel like ownership of the results are not on them anymore. Um, I, I know that sounds, um, you know, I don't think many people have that, but we've all had those clients where it's almost like, you know, they're like, I've hired you, my work is yeah. done. <laughs> and so I try to, when I get some of that and I get these, I try to say like, listen, this is, you know, this is mostly on you, <laughs> you, know what I mean? like, you know, so you're going to, you've got to take ownership of these results and we're going one of two ways. So um, I, I do try to interrupt that. And, and I think that for me, it keeps my sanity because I'm not having these like overly negative emails in my inbox, which you're right. Yeah. It can kind of like, um, you know, I, I, I think in my early part of my career, I didn't interrupt that cycle with people. And I would have these people where 
Um, sometimes I'm like, before I even open their email, I'm like, it's going to be just bad news from start to finish. Yes. <laughs> so, so, but uh, yeah, I think that sometimes kind of laying it out to them, like, hey, when you tell me these things, I really want you to um, think about whether this is really important to tell me or if this is just you needing to vent. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, then, then I think they think a little bit more about, about what they're saying. Yeah, I think that's fantastic, actually making sure, first of all, you're taking into account what they're feeling, but then laying out and being honest about the decision, but putting the, the ball in their court effectively, because um, I think that's super important because then they take that ownership and they kind of are like, yeah, they're empowered via that. So no, I think that's a brilliant way to deal with that. That's a great word too, empowered. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, yeah, I, I like that use of that word because I, I do think that... Um, Sorry, this is kind of a side note, but it is bodybuilding related, but it's like, um, so uh, there is some research that shows that in general, um, anxious people um, versus confident people, people that aren't anxious, um, uh, the, the, there's some research on like um, uh, external versus internal locus of control. So, uh, so generally people that are not anxious people, they feel they have the ability to um, the world will happen around them and they have their ability to affect change on the world. Um, and, and so they feel that their control, the control of their lives lies within them. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually that's a big, um, that's a big personality trait of more wealthy people actually. Um, but then, then, um, uh, people that are really anxious tend to think that, um, the world will impact what happens to them. And they're, so they're anxious because it's like, what's going to happen to me next. You know what I mean? And so I think that as a coach, little things that you can do over the course of, uh, and, and as a person, if you're going to do this for yourself, little things you can do for yourself or for your clients um, to empower them and sort of make them realize that, you know, you're in charge of your destiny in this whole deal. Um, and I think that it, 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 it's always a positive thing. So I like that. I like the use of the word empower there. Fantastic. <laughs> no, I really like that. Um, so I think we probably have time for one more question. So we're digging to the one from Holger Dumpsky. Um, and he essentially asked, how would you change training volume during a contest prep? Or during a cut, um, actually. So- he asked during a cut, not a prep, but you can do both. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, generally, if it's just a mini cut where we're just trying to drop 10 pounds, I don't typically reduce volume at all. Um, I'll kind of keep it, keep it about where it is. Um, so it's hard to discuss volume without also discussing intensity, right. um, because, um, I think that in general, uh, so sometimes I will, you need to ask how, how many sets is somebody taking to failure on an average week? Um, so, um, you know, if, if I have a client that I know tends to train really hard, I would probably reduce their volume more during a, a prep or, you know, when things start to get really hard, then with somebody, I know that they tend to need a little bit more of a pushing, if right. that makes sense. Um, because I, I think that somebody who in their peak off season, full calories, that is probably training right at their capacity. Um, I know I'll need to reduce because that's going to reduce. Whereas someone that I think that no matter how much I encourage them to go for it, you know, some people just have different motors where they're probably, I know they're probably falling short of that peak capacity. I don't think that I'll actually need to reduce quite as much. So first off, I think you need to ask yourself, which type of person are you? I mean, that's very difficult self observation to make, but um, you know, if, if you're that type of person that's really tends to 
probably overdo it more than you should. Um, I think you're going to need to reduce volume a little bit more. Um, and so, um, it, for from my experience, I, I don't think I, I know I know I don't usually do it. I don't think that most people end up needing to reduce their volume okay. until they really get to those last, let's say, eight to ten pounds during prep. And at which point, then you can start bringing things down a little bit in that in that manner. Um, and then I'll also say during those final ones, I think the limiting this is a more of an intensity thing, but I also do limit the amount of times I suggest people go to failure. Um, I think then it's time to actually make more use of the I'm stopping one or two reps short. Um, and I think that because going to failure, I actually think makes a lot more um, inroads into recovery than an extra set here or there. Um, and, and I think that people that have been in those last few pounds of contest prep would probably agree with me on that. So, yeah, I do think that people need to reduce volume, but I don't think it's massive reductions, maybe just a few sets over the course of the week for each body part. And then, you know, um, managing how much you're going to failure. And then during a mini cut, I really don't usually reduce volume because I, I, I do think that people can oftentimes during a mini cut gain strength. Um, sometimes I think it's also weird. You know, they start losing weight. They feel a little bit better about the way they look and it gives them a little bit more to push yeah. in the gym. Um, so which also tells us a lot about how much um, our strength gains are also psychological, yeah. not just physical. <laughs> he so also hopefully asked... that helps with Sorry, Cliff. Um, he also asked just because it was related and you kind of touched on it, um, just whether or not you do program with like a reps and reserve or RPE. And I guess, yeah, I'll let you answer rather than try and answer for you. <laughs> no, no, I, I actually, um, I do like reps and reserve more than RPE um, because uh, I, I think it tends to be a little bit more straightforward. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just this one thing, I you know, like how many reps and reserve. Um, now, I will say this. So like when I first start off with... Um, a client that's probably more newer to training, like under five years, I will get a little bit more specific in how many reps in reserve I would recommend for specific ones. But when I have competitors that have been training like 10 plus years, I tend to um, put the ball in their court more because okay. they've been doing this so long. Um, they, they usually have a much better idea of, because ultimately as a coach, when I'm programming, I don't know how they're going to feel when they wake up a specific morning. Um, and I think that, well, and, and also a lot of the research shows life circumstances really also impact recovery quite a bit. How much sleep are you getting per night? How's your eating been, you know, in terms of nutrition, uh, stress levels at work and at home. So, um, you know, for me as a, as a coach, I can program this many reps in reserve, um, on a given day, but you know, somebody that's been training 10 plus years, maybe they just wake up and they feel great that day, you know? Um, so on that day, I, I try to um, give people the uh, leeway to say, hey, I feel amazing today. I'm just going to go for it because, um, you know, I, I think we also know that, you know, muscle growth is, uh, is a response to um, uh, stimulus. And, you know, each set, I kind of try to take the approach of um, are we going to provide a new stimulus today? Um, and, you know, are we going to add weight or are we going to add reps or, um, you know, is it going to be something, you know, like a drop set or whatever it may be. Um, and so I think that particularly once you get above 10 years of training, sometimes it gets harder and harder for us to provide new stimulus because strength gains just can't be what they mm -hmm. were. Um, so whereas with a newbie, I can, I can literally just plan out these progressions because they will hit that. But once you get 10 plus years, those strength gains get fewer and farther between. So I'm kind of like, Hey, 
feel amazing that day, I want you to go for it. But if you wake up and you feel like crap for that day, you know, you can even pull it back farther and then you can go for it once you feel a little bit better. So um, I do think that um, I like reps in reserve, but also don't be afraid to make judgment calls on the day off based on how you feel. Okay, perfect. Really interesting. So I want to say a massive thank you to, unfortunately, we only got to two questions, but um, as you can see, Cliff answers them incredibly comprehensively and uh, is incredibly interesting and has really great insights into all of this. So I hope many of you have maybe been sold. And like I said, on the 28th of September, um, you can be there. Um, but do please enjoy this episode. And I want to make sure you can find more from Cliff if you don't happen to be able to make it. So Cliff, let me know or let the listeners know rather uh, where they can find more about you. Um, yeah, so I mean, uh, people can go to my Facebook page, um, but you can also find me on Instagram at CW Team Wilson. And then uh, my website is teamwilsonbb.com. Um, there I have like all the stuff about my, my coaching, and you can apply if you want to go for coaching there. Um, get a hold of me early because I am oftentimes booked up a little bit in advance. But, um, but yeah, and then other than that, you know, I post a lot of things on my Instagram. Um, and, you know, but I am. I'm very much looking forward to this seminar. So I really appreciate Likewise. you guys having me having me over. I think it'll be a great time. Yeah, definitely. So thank you again, Cliff, and thank you guys for listening.